Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 75. The Brewers open a 10-game road trip with a nice series win in Cleveland. Looked like they were going to cough it up on Sunday. They snatch it back in extras. Owen Miller gets back at his former team. The record the Brewers possess when they score four runs or more is absurd. We will talk about that as they head to New York starting a four-game set against the Mets tonight. We will discuss the NBA. Free agency technically gets underway this weekend as the new league year starts. Chris Middleton, technically a free agent, as is Brooke Lopez. Sounds like Dame Lillard may want to get out of Portland after they drafted a guard with the third overall pick last Thursday. We'll recap the PGA Travelers Championship. We maybe flew too close to the sun, as George Costanza would say, on Wings of Pastrami. Betting on the other tour tournaments now instead of just the major championships didn't go that well for us over the weekend. We may still effort the Rocket Mortgage Classic this weekend, and we'll talk a little Badger football at the end of it. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a interception, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. to follow up as well I know on Friday's podcast we were discussing IVs our buddy Matthew J who is our afternoon show host on B93 him and his wife were going to see Zach Brown band at Summerfest on Friday he casually mentioned before he left on Thursday during the workday that he was going to be going to get an IV in Milwaukee before they went to that show on Friday night and I said, an IV? I have never heard of such a thing other than going to a hospital when you need fluids or in a bad situation where you need an IV. Apparently, there are IVs that you can purchase that will help you feel better, that will maybe get you over a hangover or prevent a hangover. There's one in Plymouth, not that far from our broadcast location. I guess they're popping up all over the country. Pretty popular now. And we discussed that on the air on Friday. We discussed it on the podcast on Friday. I'm going to get you the direct quote from Matt. He texted me on Saturday morning. Well, he texted me Friday afternoon as he was hooked up to his IV, and he said, get in my veins. And then Saturday morning, pretty bright and early, right after 8 o'clock, after a Zach Brown band show that probably didn't wrap up till midnight, or they didn't get home till midnight or 1 a.m., he said, partied pretty hard last night. I feel like a million bucks. No hangover, and I feel like I'm in my 20s. Dot, 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 IV works. i got to try one of these things. I, just once. I am afraid for myself. As I said on Friday, I do have an addictive personality. My bookie can corroborate that. Where when I really get into something, I can sometimes take it a little bit too far. And especially if you're feeling good. If this is making you feel 25, like he said, 25 or 30% better just as is. But if it can cure hangovers or prevent hangovers... I've got to at least do my due diligence here and get one of them just to make sure I can back up the information that I'm receiving. He has no reason to lie about that, but feels like he's in his 20s. 
All right. You know, the sad part was I read that text out of the air this morning, and I was looking at my Google calendar. My wife and I, like many couples out there, share a Google calendar. That's the modern-day version of the actual physical paper calendar you would write things on or the dry erase board, which I'm sure many people still have, but we just rely on the, the shared Google calendar, the shared Google Doc. And I was looking through it for the course of the summer to find out when's the next time we might be doing that. We might be going out late, going to a concert, really giving her where it would justify spending whatever it is, $100 or $110 on an IV before or an IV afterwards. There's just nothing on there. I got a baby shower coming up in July. Shout out, Pat. Are we going to be doing drinking there? Maybe a little bit, right? I don't know if it would necessitate an IV before or after as a preventative measure, but I was looking through that Google Calendar, and I didn't see anything where I thought, boy, I'd really need that extra jolt before that, or maybe I'll need one of those after that. Kind of made me sad going through the Google Calendar. The next big thing we have coming up now, we'll be doing stuff during the course of the summer, maybe a Brewer game here or there. But the next big thing we've got coming up, my wife got me tickets to go see Bill Burr. I love Bill Burr, stand-up comic, and a great podcast. Now, that's a podcast, the Monday Morning Podcast. Check that out. If you're listening to this, then you will definitely love the Monday Morning Podcast. That's an actual good podcast. So if you're suffering through this 30 or 35 minutes every week, then you'll really like the Bill Burr Podcast. But that's a Sunday night. She got that for me for my birthday. It's a Sunday night in October. That's way down the road, but... I think we're taking the Monday off just so you're not, you don't have the Sunday scaries. That's the worst when you have something you want to see on a Sunday night and you get those Sunday scaries already. And then on top of that, you got that in the back of your head when you're at five or four at eight or nine o'clock on a Sunday night. Oh, I got to go to work tomorrow. Maybe that day. That might be the first time I could actually do one of those, test run it, and then see how I feel on Monday with a day off on Monday. But we'll see. But he said, feels like he's in his 20s. And Matt's older than me. Feels like he's in his 20s after that IV bag on Friday. All right, let's talk about the Brew Crew. Not a bad start. They are beginning a 10-game road trip, 2-1 and one on the road trip, but they are now 6-3 and three since I unofficially put them on a 30-day timeline. I'm not sure they're aware of that. But remember the Friday before the Pirates series at AmFam Field, we gave them about a 30-day-ish window where by July 20th, once you're a week and a half out from the trade deadline, if things don't go well in that window, maybe they do become sellers. If they go well in that window, maybe you become buyers or at least you're not a seller. In that window, they are now 6-3. and three. It's a good start to the road trip. Cleveland is about on par with Milwaukee. They've played pretty much the same way this year. The records are very similar. After the Brewers beat them on Sunday, the Brewers are 40-37. and 37. The Guardians are 37-40. and 40. So they're similar teams to go to their place and get a series win. It's a great start to a 10-game road trip that's not going to be easy. Corbin Burns, not great. He shaved the hair. He got himself a haircut. I know so many people that were getting so tired of the Corbin Burns long hair. It didn't bother me until somebody pointed out to me that when he had long hair and he would go out there and throw a pitch, he would readjust his hair or his mullet tail or whatever you want to call it. He would do something with it after almost every pitch. Got some, <laughs> he got some Vaseline in there or something. That would be a good place to hide it. They always check the belt and they check your pants and they check your thumb and everything when you come off the field here and there. Maybe hide some of that in those flowing locks. But I know a lot of people were irritated by that when Corbin Burns would make his start and he would always be flipping that hair back and forth. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. He's got his rookie year, his 2018 rookie year haircut. I guess the haircut wasn't the issue. Big haircut. No longer, You're no longer Big Tuna. You are Big Haircut. 
But that didn't seem to change his recent fortunes, at least. He was rolling. He had one bad inning. The Brewers had a 4-1 to lead, and with Corbin on the mound and their record, which we'll talk about in a minute, the record the Brewers have when they score four runs or more is insanely good. When you're up 4-1 to and you've got Corbin on the mound, you're feeling like, all right, that's going to be a win. And it does end up being a win, but it gets a lot more tense after he gives up three runs in the sixth inning. He walked a couple of guys, couldn't quite locate, was spiking a lot of his breaking stuff before it even got to home plate. Just an ugly inning. And Council in the postgame gave credit to the Guardians, too. I guess you got to give credit to the other team. They get paid, too. That's the old saying. They get paid, too, where they were taking close pitches for balls, getting on base via the walk, putting pressure on Corbin all inning and making contact when he would throw something in the zone. Corbin, I've seen some discussion on Twitter, and that's always where you go for a cogent discussion that actually breaks down the X's and O's. But there does seem to be a stubbornness with Corbin. He loves throwing that cutter. He throws it more than any other pitch. But it does burn him, and you can tell. I can't tell you how many times Rock on the Bally Sports broadcast, Rock or whatever the whoever the analyst is, Vinny Rotino yesterday. I sort of like how Vinny Rotino, when they got to extra innings, by the way, was calling the ghost runner a zombie runner. <laughs> Just made me a different visual of a runner going walking very haphazardly and slowly around the bases. Pretty sure he was looking for ghost runner, not zombie runner, but he kept calling him zombie runner. But I can't tell you how many Corbin's burn starts this year there have been where I've watched them on TV and Rock or Rotino or Tim Dillard are talking about how the other team is just hunting cutters. That's all they're looking for. Their approach when they go up there against Corbin is to look for a cutter. If it's not a cutter, don't swing. And if it is a cutter, if you can figure out about the location, swing at those. That's what they're doing, but Corbin is insistent on that being his pitch, and he goes to it 65 70% of the time. There is a growing group of Brewer fans on Twitter that are getting frustrated with what seems to be a bit of stubbornness as it relates to his pitching strategy when he's out there every five days, and that's what burned him. He couldn't locate the curveball. He was spiking the changeup, and then if the Guardians hitters are just waiting on cutters, it was the only pitch he seemed like he could locate in that inning, and when he did put it out over the plate, they put good contact on it. Maybe there is something to that. Again, I'm not sure how many people on Twitter, random fans on Twitter, or random podcasters are able to break the game down like that and really get to the heart of what his issues are this year, but maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe he is just being very stubborn and wanting to throw the pitches that he's comfortable throwing, but when other teams are hunting that pitch and that pitch alone, you have to mix it up more. Maybe you have to change up the way or the order you go through your pitches. Or maybe in the first or second inning, you only throw a handful of cutters just to throw them off their game a bit. But it does seem like hitters really are sitting on that Corbin Burns cutter. And the cutter, which was once unhittable basically in 2020 and 2021 and part of 2022 until the second half of the year, when pitchers or hitters can anticipate that it's coming – and that's all you're looking for, and you're not worried about anything else being thrown for a strike, that's a pretty good approach against a guy whose stuff is just vicious. If you're just looking for one thing, maybe he does have to mix it up earlier in the game and throw a few different things just to get them off kilter a bit. Uh, Maybe that is. Stubbornness could be a factor. But the hair, he tried the hair, so we'll scratch that off. Maybe now we mix up the locations or mix up the pitching sequences. 
But the Guardians do get the game tied in that sixth inning, tied at four. It goes to extra innings. How about Owen Miller? He was, what would you say, about a foot away from a two-run bomb with one out. Yelich could not make contact the first at-bat of that tenth inning. He had a good day, though, too. He had two more hits, another double, another run scored. He's hitting 270. His OPS, again, is around 800. That run driven in is 34th of the year. Solid day for Christian, but he couldn't make contact in the top half of the tenth. But then Owen Miller slugs that one to left field. They went to replay just to see if maybe it hit off of a railing or something and bounced back, but it did hit off the tippy top of that yellow padding at the top of the wall. He was that close to a two-run bomb. It ends up being the go-ahead RBI. He had two doubles yesterday. He's turning it around a bit for as good as he was in May. And I know we were going crazy about Owen Miller in May on the blog and on the podcast because he was. He was spectacular. He had 368 in May. His OPS is over 900. He had one of the best offensive months of any player in the National League in May. For as good as May was, June has not been good. Before Sunday, he was hitting under 200 in the month of June. Maybe this gets him back on track, though. Two for five, two doubles, two runs driven in, and a run scored on Sunday. They couldn't tack on anything else. Devin Williams they used up in the ninth inning to get it to extras. He had a scoreless frame. Elvis Pagaro comes on, and with that ghost zombie runner on second base, he goes through the heart of the Guardians' order. Three, four, and five, Ramirez, Naylor, and Jimenez. And Naylor and Jimenez, Naylor hit a home runoff of Burns earlier in the game. He had two hits. Jimenez had two hits. And Ramirez is one of the best offensive players in the American League. And Piguero, this is really his first year where he's seeing significant action and high leverage innings. To go through that part of the order with the pressure and extra innings of a runner on second base. And he was coming off of a game on Saturday where he gave up the go-ahead run as an inherited runner, Freddie Peralta's inherited runner. He had a bad outing on Saturday, giving up that lead almost immediately to come back out there in that situation as a young pitcher with the runner on second, on the road, heart of the order, and to get those outs. Pretty impressive stuff. Brewers hang on for a 5-4 to four win. I do want to talk a little bit about, and I know we've mentioned this before, not just Piguero, but Yoel Piamps. These two guys, pretty shrewd moves by Matt Arnold in the offseason. He gets Piamps as a throw-in, basically, in the William Contreras deal. It still blows my mind. I know Estuary Ruiz, he was the big name leaving, the only name leaving Milwaukee in that trade. And because Oakland is a disaster, he's seeing a ton of playing time. He's going to steal about 100 bases this year, it looks like. He may be their all-star. And because of the playing time that he's getting in a no-pressure situation, he's going to have a pretty good year. But you get Contreras. He's been... Pretty good. I don't want to go crazy. He's been a lot better as a catcher than we anticipated. Average is sitting around 250. We haven't seen the explosion of home runs yet, but he's got eight. He's not having a bad year at all. His OPS is in the upper 700s. But in addition to that, that was the star player coming back. But just to get this bullpen arm as a throw-in, and I remember when they acquired Piamps, of course, you click on his stats. We'll see how this guy's doing. And in pretty limited action in a couple of different stops in Major League Baseball, he's had ERAs in the low threes. I thought, okay, I mean, that's something you can live with. The Brewers lost, what was his name? He was the seventh-inning guy, and he went to Chicago, I want to say. They traded Hayter, and then they just lost. Oh, Brad Boxberger. That's what it reminded me of, because Boxberger was one of those guys, too. He was an innings eater. It felt like he was pitching almost every other game for the Brewers, and he always had an ERA pretty serviceable in the upper twos, low threes, throughout the course of the year. And when I looked at Piamp's numbers, I thought, oh, maybe this is a Boxberger replacement, a guy who pretty consistently in his career has been in the low to mid threes ERA-wise. Maybe he's a guy who can fill that role, and he has more than done that. He had two scoreless, two strikeouts. His ERA is 2.29, 
and he has been a very reliable bullpen arm. Again, as a guy you just kind of got in as a throw-in in that Contreras deal. And Piguero, too, is a guy they get in the Hunter Renfro deal that you sort of thought, okay, we'll see if this guy can do anything. 26 years old. He had had a couple of cups of coffee with the Angels. He threw in two innings in 2021. Two and 17 innings in 2022, and he had about a 7 ERA in 2022 in those 17 innings. He's thrown 28 innings for the Brewers this year. He's a 2.89 ERA. He's got a war of .5. Anytime you're in a positive war as a relief pitcher and you're not a closer, that's pretty good. He's got 25 strikeouts in 20 innings. You know, they got a couple of these reliable arms so far. Now, look, it's bullpen. I get it. They could be very good through the first three months of the year, and they could have three or four blow-up starts at some point in July or August, and their whole season unravels. But right now, as we're recording this podcast on June 26th, you got to tip your cap to Matt Arnold for unearthing some of these guys that they've been able to use in high leverage late in games. I don't know that I expected that when they picked up Piamps or when I saw Piguero's name in the Hunter Renfro deal, but they've been outstanding. And Devin Williams gets the win. He's 4-1 and one on the year. Like we said, Yelly had a couple of hits, another double for him. Owen Miller had a couple of hits. Rowdy Tillez, pretty good contact. He had a run driven in and a walk as well on Sunday. Blake Perkins, is he a guy maybe we'll see more of? The Brewers have this glut of outfielders still, even with all of the injuries. You like his approach. Perkins was a second-round pick in 2015 for Washington. Never really had a major run in the minor leagues that he rocketed up a scouting list or a top prospects list. And he then got dealt, I think, to the White Sox for a while. Brewers kind of pick him up off the street. But he had two hits yesterday. He had a walk on base three times. Two really bad base running errors. You have to throw that in there, too. I thought his approach at the plate was an A yesterday. His base running was an F-. minus. He got thrown out at second, overrunning the bag on a steal attempt, and got picked off at first. You just can't have that. For a team that is struggling to score runs, they have scored the fewest runs in the National League, 312, the lowest of anybody. When you're struggling to score runs, you simply cannot have guys making outs on the base paths because in a rare occurrence where you string together two or three hits, you want to be able to cash in as much as you can in that run. They don't happen often. You just cannot have outs on the base pad. So that was bad. But two for three with a walk. The guy's hitting 295 and has an OPS over 800. Again, it's not a huge sample size for Blake Perkins, but for a team that is starved offensively, it's going to be hard to keep a guy with a 295 average and 44 at-bats. That's, again, pretty limited. It's pretty small, but... When you look up and down, we talked about it on Friday when we were talking about the Diamondback series. When you look at these averages up and down the Brewer lineup and you look at how few runs they've scored, you just can't afford to have a guy who's hitting 295. I don't care how small the sample size is, on the bench. I would think he's going to see more playing time the better he is at the plate. Now, you've got to work out the base running stuff, but still, pretty impressive date for him at the plate. Joey Weimer under the radar, too. He's not as hot as he was in that stretch a few weeks ago. But he had a hit, an RBI, two runs scored. His war is over one. He's hitting 213. He's gotten that average ticked up a bit. He's been pretty impressive. He's stabilizing a bit at the plate. With the win, the Brewers are 40 and 37. Also, with the win, this team is 36 and 6 when they score four runs. We maybe brought this up at some point on the podcast. Four runs is not a massive threshold. When you look up and down box scores in baseball on a day-to-day basis, I would say 60% of teams on a day-to-day or 65% are putting four runs or more on the board. It's not like you need to score six, seven, eight runs a game to win. Four is pretty low. Shows you how good the pitching has been. That's one thing, too. I was on Twitter when Burns was having that bad inning 
And a bunch of people on Brewer Twitter were going crazy about the Brewer pitching. This Brewer pitching can't hold a lead. Brewer pitching has been bad. Guys, this team is 36-6 and six when they score four runs. Pitching is not the problem. You're going to have bad innings here or there. You're going to have a blow-up from somebody in the bullpen here or there. But that is so far from the problem, even with all of the injuries. That is so far from the problem with this team or the biggest problem right now with this team. 36-6 and six when they score four runs or more. That is an 857 winning percentage. That is the best record in baseball when you just break it down by that stat, when the offense scores four runs or more. Can we find a way to get four runs more consistently, please? Willie Adamas is a guy you got it going, too. He was awesome on Friday. Had four hits, two home runs. You were hoping that would bust him out of his big slump. Then he goes hitless on Saturday, hitless on Sunday. This team just needs more consistency. But if you score four runs, it's almost a win every time. I couldn't believe that stat when they flashed it on the Bally Sports broadcast after the win. 36-6. and six. Best team in baseball. Four runs, that's it. If we were talking five runs or six runs, that's a taller order. But four runs? We'll see if they can keep it going tonight. They take the road trip to New York, first of four against the Mets. It'll be Colin Ray versus Justin Verlander. The Mets have been a big letdown. They are 35-42 and 42 entering play tonight. They are were expected to be a team competing for an NL pennant. Even though they lose to Grom, they pick up Verlander. They have Scherzer, so they still have that one-two punch. Neither of them have been as good as their numbers have been in the past. But it'll be Verlander who has owned the Brewers in the past for a variety of teams through a no-hitter against the Brewers when he was in Detroit. That's the pitching matchup to get things started tonight. Colin Ray, as we've talked about, he's kind of kept you in games. He has made 13 starts for the Brewers, and they are 7-6 and six in those 13 starts. I don't know that you could ask a whole lot more out of a guy who's been a career AAA guy or what you would maybe call a quad A, a 4A player, a guy who's been okay in the minor leagues but has not quite been able to have that success at the major league level like Keston Hira, really or what Keston Hero has been since 2020, a 4A player. But in 13 starts with all the injuries to go 7-6, and six, he doesn't have all those wins, but all that matters is the team win. To go 7-6 and six in those 13 games, you feel all right about that. You feel like you're keeping your head above water. How he'll do tonight against Verlander, I don't know. Verlander, again, has been uneven. He has an ERA in the mid-fours entering play tonight. But just about every start I've seen him make against the Brewers, the Brewers have been unable to touch him for the most part. A 6-10 first pitch tonight, and they will see Scherzer now on the back end of this four-game set as well. Four in New York before wrapping up the 10-game trip with three in Pittsburgh. The Reds finally lost a couple of games at home to the Braves over the weekend. They lost on Sunday. With that, the Brewers begin play one-half game out of first place in the NL Central. They are even in the lost column. The Reds are 41-37. The Brewers are 40-37. Cubs also lost yesterday. They've been gaining a little bit of momentum, too. They were a game or close to getting to 500. They lose on Sunday. They are three back. Pirates now five and a half back. They are one and nine in their last 10. And the Cardinals, 32 and 45, five and five in their last 10, but still sitting eight and a half back in the Central. We'll still hear from them. There was some Bleacher Report article talking about the trade deadline that talked about Paul Goldschmidt if they want to unload. I don't know why the Cardinals would do that. I would think if this year just continues to be bad for St. Louis, which you hate to see, if it continues to be bad for St. Louis, They've got these guys all on long-term deals. Goldschmidt just won the MVP last year. My guess is St. Louis will chalk this up more to a one-off. Just everybody had a bad year. They couldn't quite get the pitching when they had the hitting or vice versa. I don't think they'd be unloading at the deadline, but this Bleacher Report article had the Brewers as a top-five destination 
if the Cardinals trade Paul Goldschmidt, which I don't think is going to happen, and I really don't think they'd trade him in the division to the Brewers if they had to. I just don't see that. Man, that would be awesome, though. That would be great as a guy who can plug in a gold glover at first base who hits 35 home runs and knocks 100 runs. That'd be great. We did have a texter on the B93 text line this morning asking if I thought there were any bats out there or are there any bats out there because we were talking about the four-run threshold. Asked if there was a bat out there that maybe they could try to get at the deadline. When you look at the top 20 guys that could be available at the deadline, 17 of them are pitchers, which it never hurts to get another bullpen arm, or maybe they do need to get another starter for some reason. You expect Woodruff is going to be back at least in the next two or three weeks, hopefully. I don't know that you'd need a starter, but maybe a bullpen arm. But that's about it. Those are the biggest names out there. The biggest name that could be traded is Shohei Otani. <laughs> do you think we could get him? Yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's pick up that Otani kid. I've heard some good things. He could be out there. He has one year left on his Angels deal after this year. The Angels are actually having an okay year by their standards. They are 42-37. and 37. They're above 500. Would they be in the wild? Let me click on the wild card. With the new wild cards, everybody's in it. The Angels are a game out of a wild card spot, and they've only been in the playoffs one time in Mike Trout's career and zero times in Otani's career. I don't know if they'd be looking to trade anybody. The Brewers certainly are not going to get Shohei Otani, but he would be the biggest name out there. The other name that I've heard floated is Tim Anderson from the White Sox. You would think the White Sox will be sellers at the deadline. Anderson seems unhappy in Chicago. He's having a bad year, but he has had really good years, batting championship-type years. The thing is, he's a shortstop. You've got Adamas there already, even though he's having a down year. Would Tim Anderson, if you were to acquire a guy like that, would they want to play a different position for a team that's fighting for a division? I have no idea. But there really aren't right now. That'll change in the next three weeks when we get closer to the deadline. But if you look at any recent article about the top people available at the trade deadline, most of them are starting pitchers and relief pitchers, not a big bat out there. But if the Brewers are going to be buyers, you would hope that that is going to be something they will target when you when you know what your record is when you score four runs. Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. All right, real quick, in the NBA, it's free agency week. Oh, the Dame Lillard trade rumors, which have been going on for years, and it feels like more so now than ever in the past, I don't know, two weeks. The Trailblazers draft Scoot Henderson, number three overall last Thursday. He's a six foot two guard. Apparently, Dame Lillard, who has been very loyal to Portland, and anytime trade rumors are brought up, he seems to want to stay there. He wants to win there. He kind of wants to have, and he's been there longer than Giannis has been in Milwaukee, or about the same time. He's been there longer. They seem to have the same mentality where Giannis wanted to win in Milwaukee, the team that drafted him. And I think Dame shares some of that sentimentality. But apparently, before the draft, the rumors were that Dame talked to the Portland hierarchy and said, look, I'm not getting any younger here. I'm 33 years old. We need to make this happen now. The window is now. And then for them to not only draft a project-ish player, but for it to be a guard for a guy that would play the same position Dame does, apparently not happy about that. The rumors on Twitter this morning are that the team he'd most likely land at would be Miami. I don't know how the Bucks would go and get him. I've loved Dame for forever. He is a defensive liability, but he is one of the best pure scorers in the league in the last 10 to 15, 20 years maybe. It would be amazing to see him in a Bucks jersey. Before the title, that was the guy I would have said – that's the guy they need. After 2019, I remember thinking when they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals to Kawhi and the Raptors, 
I remember thinking, we got to go get a guy like Dame. Get a guy like Dame. And then, you know, they had the great regular season in 2020, undermined by the pandemic and the bubble. Then they win the title in 2021. So the desire for Dame sort of waned there. But you've seen it pick up among Bucks fans on social media in the past few months. I don't know how they would get him. I think they'd have to sign Chris to an extension. The Trailblazers, though, have no interest. If they're going to deal Dame, they don't want a 32-year-old Chris Middleton or a 33-year-old Drew Holiday. They would want some young blue-chip prospects that they can put next to Scoot Henderson, who they just drafted, and Anthony Simons, who's a young guard as well. They want young players or draft capital. The Bucks don't really have either of those. But the rumor is that he would like to go to Miami, and Miami probably does have the draft capital to pull that off. If that does happen, that does change the complexion of the East. We had the Kristaps Porzingis news before Friday's podcast. He's going to Boston. That adds a layer there of offense. Somebody did put a highlight up. There was a Celtics fan on Instagram or something talking about how much better they are now with Kristaps Porzingis and how they're the team to beat in the East. And somebody put footage up of Giannis scoring 55 on Kristaps Porzingis when the when he was in Washington. This must have been last year. Coming back from injury, and he just is out-muscling and abusing Porzingis in the post. Porzingis gives you good shooting. He gives you a good offensive game, but he's a minus right now defensively. Maybe there are ways Boston can hide him, but that was a big part of another contender in the East getting a different type of player Obviously, the Heat, with the way they took care of business as a 7-seed or 8-seed in the playoffs, if they add a guy like Dame and are able to put him next to Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and not really have to give up a whole lot to get him, I would imagine Tyler Hero would be a part of the pieces going out. But they lost Tyler Hero in the Bucks series, and they just kept on winning even without him. I would think that's a young type of player the Trailblazers would want back in that deal. If Dame goes to Miami, that will change the complexion of the East. They would then, I would guess, be the betting favorites to win the conference if you put him next to Jimmy, Jimmy, or at least close to the top. But it is free agency week this week. Chris Middleton, technically a free agent right now. There have been no rumors connecting him to anybody else. My expectation is still that we'll hear some news this week, maybe by Friday or before Friday that he's going to sign a four- or five-year deal to be back in Milwaukee. Brooke Lopez has been generating more conversation on social media and the rumor mill. He's a free agent. I still feel, boy, I don't know. I feel 99% that Middleton's coming back. 99.9% chance that Middleton will come back. If I had to put a percentage on Brooke Lopez coming back, it still feels really likely 90%, 80%. But there have been more rumors. There are teams out there with a lot of money to spend that wouldn't mind getting a veteran center who just finished second in defensive player of the year voting. I've read Houston might be involved in trying to get him. One other team, too. I can't remember who they want to put in the post. I can't. It's not coming to me. But there are teams that have been connected to Brooke. There have been no teams connected to Middleton since he opted out last week. But there have been teams that have been rumored to have the cash and maybe some interest in Brooke Lopez. I don't think Middleton or Lopez are going to linger too long. The new league year technically starts on Saturday. I think players can sign contracts maybe by Friday, Thursday, or Friday. But you'll start hearing by Wednesday probably a lot of rumors or behind-the-scenes deals. And then the second the league year starts, I always love that. The league year starts at midnight on July 1st or 2nd or whatever it is. And then you have players signing contracts and news coming out 20 seconds after that when you're technically not supposed to tamper or negotiate leading up to the new league year. Oh, yeah, they just came to that deal 45 seconds into the league year starting. They just had one 30-second conversation and signed a contract. Well, we're really going to hear those crank up this week. 99.9 in my mind that Middleton is coming back. I would put Brooke at 90-95. It just feels like he's the fit. We did talk about after the Adrian Griffin hiring, 
It does kind of depend on what Griffin wants to do defensively. I would think you can find a role for a guy like Brooke Lopez in your defense, even if it's not the drop defense. He was such a perfect fit in the bud drop defense that you wonder how he would look in a different defense now that he's been in Milwaukee and he's been under Bud the whole time he was here, five years. How would he work in a different defense? I would think still well, but that could be a layer there that I'm not thinking about where Adrian Griffin may look at Brooke and say, I I don't know, we can fill the role that I need to fill on the defense that I want to implement with this guy or this guy cheaper or that guy cheaper or younger or more athletic or whatever. You do want to avoid, in my mind, Giannis becoming the five. Giannis can play the five. Giannis has been in closing lineups as the five. He was in the NBA Finals against the Suns in game six and game five. He was the closing center. But when Brooke was hurt, what year was that, 2022? where he didn't join the team until late in the year and in the playoffs, and Giannis was forced to play center for the majority of that year, that was not good. He was good at it, but it was so draining for him to play center night in, night out, and be the guy challenging every shot at the rim and not have that added protection of seven foot one bouncer Brooke Lopez waiting in case somebody got past you or you didn't have to help on defense. I really, truly believe that drained Giannis over the course of that year. And even though he was great in the playoffs against Chicago and great against Boston, almost single-handedly got the Bucks past Boston in that seven-game series. But I really believe there was some fatigue there, and a lot of that had to do with him playing center the entirety of the year. You want to avoid that. So even if you don't re-sign Brooke, which I think they're going to, even if you don't, you need somebody in that spot. I just don't think you want to go into the year where Giannis is the starting center and that pressure is put on him. In addition to what you need him to do offensively, that pressure is put on him defensively. But it is the new league year week this week. That will be a big discussion throughout the course of the week. Free agency and where players are going and maybe potential trades too. In the PGA Travelers Championship, we said on Friday, we've been so good with betting on the majors this year. Normally, I only pick one winner for every major. Well, after we won the ROM Masters bet, now we've been throwing in ticklers on top 10 finishes and top 5 finishes and top 20 finishes, but we've been good. We've been way, way up. So because of that, I dipped my toe into the weekend tournament, the Travelers Championship. It did not go that well. Scotty Scheffler did finish top 20, but that was at minus 200. So the Scotty Scheffler win basically paid for half of one of the other bets. And that's it. So we end up down. Victor Hovland, I had winning. He finished 25th. He's still always kind of around the top. The scores were insane from this tournament. Keegan Bradley wins it at minus 23. Hovland, I want to say, was minus 13. I had Hovland to win. That did not pan out. I had Tommy Fleetwood top 20. He's been near the top for about a month now in every tournament. He did not make the cut, so he wasn't even on the course on Saturday. That that cash was in the fire before the weekend even started. Now, do we go back to the well? It's the Rocket Mortgage Classic this weekend. We'll have to take a look at who's all playing. Not all the big names play every tournament. We'll have to see who's all out there, what the odds are. I may try one. This may be my one more just to see. This might be my collecting data still tournament, the Rocket Mortgage Classic this weekend, but we'll see. We'll talk more about that on Friday. But the Travelers Championship did not go all that well for us. And then real quick, I want to finish on Badger football. We're going to do a deeper dive into this once we get closer to the actual season. I've been talking to buddies of mine and different people I know that follow college basketball or college football very closely. The Badger season win total is so low to me, given this injection, this IV bag of enthusiasm with Luke Fickle and the Fickle era, all the four- and five-star guys coming in, the transfers they're getting. It feels like there has been this infusion of talent and optimism in the program. And when I look at the schedule, there's just nothing that blows me away. But I will also grant you, 
I didn't. I was not worried about Washington State coming to Camp Randall last year, and they go to Washington State this year, and it's early in the year, and you're still going to be learning a new system, and you're going to be having new guys come together. But when I look at this schedule, Buffalo at home, at Washington State, Georgia Southern at home, that should be 3-0, and right? Then you go to Purdue. Purdue was pretty good last year. Not an easy place to play. It's a primetime game. Rutgers at home. Iowa's always tough. That's at Camp Randall, though. You get the rematch with Bielema at Illinois. Ohio State's the biggest challenge. That's at home in October, at Indiana, at home against Northwestern, at home against Nebraska. Then the battle for the Axe is in Minnesota this year. And the Gophers had a pretty good year last year and the year before that as well. But you don't have to deal with Penn State. You don't have to deal with Michigan. You don't have to deal with some of the heavy hitters on that side of the conference. And the season win total is eight and a half. That's it. Go nine and three. It was nine. It went down. Go nine and three, and you cash that ticket with that schedule and the talent they have coming in. And I don't know. Am I <laughs> am I on hopium? I guess that's my question for the Badger fans out there. Because another poll came out, an official Big Ten ranking poll that was on Twitter over the weekend. They had the Badgers as only the sixth best team in the conference by their measure. Am I missing something? Or is this just me following all the Badger news, being a Badger fan, and getting wrapped up in hopium? Maybe that's it. But every fan I tell, granted, every friend I talk to, they're also Badger fans, so I might just be in the echo chamber here, too. That could also be a problem. Because we all feel that way. All Badger fans feel that way. That this is a team with the talent coming in and the schedule that should win 10 games or 11 games. I've seen a lot of people say they should be 12-0. and If they can just beat Ohio State, they should be able to be 12-0 and and threaten for a college football playoff spot. But then on the other hand, I see all these different rankings coming out where they're barely in the top 25 or they're the middle of the pack preseason ranking just in the Big Ten. Not in the nation, just in the Big Ten middle of the pack. Different sets of eyes see the current fickle era very differently, but eight and a half, if it gets down to eight, my hands are tied. I'll be making the best, biggest bet of my life. They're going eight and four, and if they if it gets down to eight, it's a push, and you just get your money back. I just, it feels like easy money, but John, how many times have you felt that way and you put a bet down, and then a quarter of the way through the year or a quarter of the way through the game, you think, why'd you do that? Like I could put that bet down, then they lose to Buffalo at home opening week 21 to 20. And you think, oh, <laughs> oh, womp womp. Or they lose at Washington State in week two. I don't know. It just feels like that is out there for the taking right now. We'll break it down a little bit more probably at the end of July, early August, when camp is really in effect and when we're getting close to the beginning of the year. But I just want to throw that out there. 8.5. That is the win total for the Badger football team this year. And with that schedule and no Michigan and no Penn State, it feels like 9-3 and three minimum. But it could be hopium. When we come back on Friday, we'll recap the Brewers-Mets four game set. I think you'd love to win the series, but even if you just split this, that would be good. Two and two, you'd be four and three on the road trip with one leg left. We'll recap that. I would think by Friday we're going to have a lot more concrete information on Middleton and Lopez and maybe other big moves being made in the NBA. We'll break that down on Friday. Have a good work week. We'll chat with you then.